Open up your Bibles, if you would, to Isaiah chapter 60, and uh, so let's go ahead and pray for our time in the Word. So Father, we thank you so much for just everything you're doing in our hearts and lives. As we get into your Word, may you speak to our hearts, may you just remind us of, of your love and your grace toward us and the future that we have with you and the kingdom that you're going to be established and a kingdom that you outlined for us here in the closing chapters of the book of Isaiah. And so we give you this time in Jesus' name, amen, amen. So Isaiah chapter 60, we're going to finish the book tonight, which means next week, next week we begin the book of Jeremiah. We're working our way through the prophets just one at a time, and so as we finish Isaiah next week, Jeremiah, this weeping prophet, but what God does in and through his life and his interactions with the kings of Israel, it's about 200 years later from Isaiah in, in Judah's history when, when a Jeremiah is on the scene and God does some neat things, so hopefully you can plan on being with us next Wednesday night as we begin the book of Jeremiah together. But the book of Isaiah, remember, remember for one more time tonight, is divided into four parts, four parts this book. We've been looking at it. The first 12 chapters are basically prophecies concerning Judah. Isaiah is talking just to Jerusalem and just to Judah and the king of Judah and the things going on in Judah. And then in chapter 13, it's like God's prophecy kind of widens its scope a little bit. And God begins to speak through the prophet Isaiah to the nations around the city of Jerusalem and around the nation of Judah. And so we have prophecies toward Moab and Ammon and, the, and, uh, and Babylon and Assyria and all these different nations as God speaks to them in those prophecies concerning the nations. Then in chapters 36, 37, 38, 39, it's uh, the practical statesmanship. It's when Isaiah and Hezekiah team up together, Hezekiah, king of Judah, and on their knees, they fight a battle against an invasion from Assyria. Just a great section that we went through a few weeks ago as Isaiah and Hezekiah fight together a spiritual battle against a very real enemy. Then the fourth and final section of the book of Isaiah is prophecies concerning the future. And uh, we've kind of seen that break up into three parts as well. The first few chapters, 40 through 48, focus on the greatness of God, especially compared to the idols. All these things that the Jews were getting wrapped up in, the Baals and the asterisks, man, compared to them, there was nothing like God. He's the creator and the lesson, so let him lead your life. If he's big enough to create this world, he's big enough to take your life and do it what he wants. He speaks the future before it happens, saying Cyrus, the Persian's name, 200 years before he was on the scene. And so he doesn't need your counsel. Just rest in him and let him work in your life. And he is the restorer. So we don't need to turn to idols. He's just great. Our God is. He's great. Then last week, we focused on the graciousness of God. All those prophecies in chapters 49 through 59, dealing with Messiah and his coming here to earth to die. And as we see Jesus providing forgiveness for us on a cross, purchasing grace for you and me. And that brings us to our final section here, where the focus is the gloriousness of God. Tonight, we're going to see the glories of God as seen in his future kingdom. It was Jonathan Edwards that said, you know, the great revival preacher of years ago, he said, grace is but glory begun and glory is but grace perfected. What God began, in other words, through sending his son will culminate in a new heaven and new earth like we're told about in the book of Revelation and in the closing chapters of the book of Isaiah. 
It's interesting to me that the book of Revelation ends with the new heaven and new earth. And this book of Isaiah, which remember from our first night in here, is kind of the Bible in miniature, right? There's 66 books of the Bible. There are 66 chapters of Isaiah. The first 39 books of the Bible are the Old Testament. The focus is law and judgment so often, just like the first 39 chapters of Isaiah. The final 27 books of the New Testament, the final 27 chapters of Isaiah, focusing more on the grace and goodness of God. And just like the Bible ends with a new heaven and new earth, so Isaiah ends with a new heaven and new earth. And if you're taking notes tonight, we're going to see five new things that are going to come about as God sets up his kingdom. Five new things, a new day in Israel, new life for that nation, a new name for that nation, a new victory over the world, and a new creation, the new heavens and the new earth. And so let's look at each of these sections, see what Isaiah is saying to his people and how it applies to the world we live in today. The first one, we're going to see that Israel experiences a new day. Look with me, if you would, in Isaiah chapter 60, verse 1. One. Isaiah says, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, the darkness shall cover the earth, and deep darkness the people, but the Lord will arise over you, and his glory will be seen upon you. The Gentiles shall come to your light, and the kings to the brightness of your rising. The entire emphasis of Isaiah chapter 60 and many of the chapters that will follow is this millennium. Now, Bible students, if you don't know already, please get it into your notes and understand. The millennium is the thousand-year reign of Christ that is soon coming here on planet Earth. To kind of give you a two-minute overview of prophecy that's still ahead of us. We'll put this, this on the screen. The next major event, at least the way we see prophecy here at Calvary Chapel Vista, the next major event we're looking for is the rapture of the church. That's talked about in 1 Corinthians 15, 51, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, John chapter 13, different places like that where, where God talks about a time when not everybody's going to die. But everybody needs to be changed, right? We can't take these old bodies to heaven, praise the Lord. So we need a new body and someday we'll be changed in a moment in a twinkling of an eye when God comes and takes his church. The next major thing that'll happen in the world is a seven-year tribulation period. Talked about in Daniel chapter 9, also described in Matthew 24 and the details given in Revelation 6 through 19. A seven-year period unlike anything on planet Earth before. Where, where God is actually punishing the world for their rebellion and calling Israel back to himself. That seven-year tribulation period will end with the second coming of Jesus Christ. Again, talked about in Revelation chapter 19, talked about in parts of Matthew chapter 24. And when Jesus comes back, we'll see it tonight. It's going to be devastating for those that are on the world in that day. But, but the good news, it ushers in the millennium. That's not, a, that's not a spaceship that Han Solo flies. It's a thousand year reign of Christ here on planet earth. Again, described in Revelation chapter 20 and Isaiah 60 through 65. And then after this thousand year reign of Christ, God is going to set up a new heaven and a new earth and forever you and I will be with the Lord. 
It's good news, good news. Well, here in Isaiah 60, we're seeing what's happening during the millennium. This thousand-year reign of Christ here on earth. And what God describes in this chapter is the Middle East, Israel in particular, it's going to be way different than Israel today, than Israel as we sit here tonight. Israel, as we sit here tonight, has become a little like the prophet Zechariah said it would become in the last days. Zechariah chapter 12, verse 2 says, Behold, I will make Jerusalem a cup of trembling to all people round about, and when they will be in siege both against Judah and Jerusalem. The whole world, including the United States in some ways, has become antagonistic toward Israel. And that is just what Zacharias said was going to happen. The whole world is just going to see them as a cup of trembling, as a problem, and as kind of a, a burr in, in their saddle, so to speak. Just an issue in the world today. And we long and we see and we hope, oh, would there be peace in Jerusalem. But I got to tell you, friends, there won't be any peace accord. No president, no prime minister will be able to get it done. In fact, the one that does appear to get it done, you might want to be a little wary of that guy or gal. For we understand, guy, we understand from the book of Daniel and Revelation that the Antichrist will appear to bring peace to the Middle East for about three and a half years. But what will follow again will be horrifying. The lesson There will be no true peace for the Middle East as long as man is in control. But in the millennium, things will definitely change with Jesus on the throne. As we read in verse 3 and we see again in verses 11 and 12 in chapter 60, God will gather all to Jerusalem. Therefore, he says in verse 11, your gates will be open continually. They shall not be shut day or night that men might bring to you the wealth of the Gentiles and the kings in procession for the nations and kingdoms which shall not serve you shall perish and those nations shall be utterly ruined. It'll be a new day. Israel will be at peace. Verse 18 says there will be no more violence in the land. Violence shall no longer be heard in your land, neither wasting nor destruction within your borders but you shall call your walls salvation and your gates praise it'll be a completely different deal in Israel when Jesus is on the throne and of course this is a wonderful thing to consider as students of Bible prophecy but I hope you realize to apply it tonight the same thing is true for you and me Maybe in your heart, maybe in your life, it kind of it feels like the Gaza Strip in there. <laughs> Unrest, poverty, sadness, upheaval. And there's something in us that always thinks, peace is right around the corner. If I could just find the right man or the right woe man, if I could just find the right job, the right opportunity, then everything would be okay in my heart. But can I tell you, precious ones, because I care about you, the reality is it's not going to be found in any person, place, or thing, at least no person of this world. But it will be found in the Lord, allowing Him to have the throne of your heart as He makes all things new and beautiful as we submit ourselves to Him. I was going over with the group in our equip class uh, on Monday night. Just the picture that I love there is, as David becomes king over all the nation of Israel. You know, he's anointed as a little boy. 
and spends his young adult life, his 20s, just first working for Saul as his general and then being chased by Saul over the wilderness. And as 1 Samuel ends, you remember if you were with us, Saul and his sons die and David comes back to Israel, but they, they only make him king over Judah, just, just one tribe. They, they install one of Saul's remaining sons, Ishbosheth, over the rest of the kingdom. And the whole time, there's war and there's fighting. And right in the middle of the nation, the city of Jerusalem, it's not even called Jerusalem, it's called Jebus. Because the Jebusites, a Canaanite people, are still living They were supposed to be eradicated hundreds of years before when Joshua led the armies into the land of Canaan. But there's still a Canaanite stronghold right in the middle of Israel as their kingdom is divided. But, 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 but. The minute Israel wakes up and says, you're our king, David. You're the one we want. And they make David king over not just a tribe, but the whole thing. The first thing the scripture records David does, he goes right to the city of Jerusalem. And he takes what has been a stronghold right in the middle of the nation and he wins it for God's name and God's kingdom. And I don't know about you, but I see it as a great picture and a great lesson for me. As long as my heart, our hearts are divided between this and that, it doesn't have to even be bad sinful things. Just between this and that and my my love is over there and my intention's over here and I'm ripped from one place to another, it's always going to be no peace in my Middle East heart. No, no way. It'll always be upheaval. It'll always be, ah. And oftentimes, there will be cities of carnality right in the middle of my life until I let Jesus be king. Until I say, Lord, take it all. Not just a part, take it all. And what he will do, just like David did, he'll march right to those areas of inconsistency, those areas of hypocrisy, and he will win them over for the kingdom of God. And there will be peace in my heart, not because I finally figured it out, but because I surrendered, you surrendered, we surrendered to the lordship of Jesus Christ in our life. What will be true in the future in Israel can be true in your heart tonight. Because the secret's the same thing. It's Jesus. It's Jesus. It's Jesus. He brings about a new day. Secondly, secondly, he brings about new life. Chapter 61. Look at verse 1 of chapter 61 with me. It says, The Spirit of the Lord, God, is upon me. Because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and to open of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort those who mourn, to console those who mourn in Zion, to give them beauty for ashes and the oil of joy for mourning and the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness that they may be called trees of righteousness and planting of the Lord that he may be glorified. The opening of chapter 61, if it sounds familiar, there's a reason for that. It's the passage that Jesus used to begin his public ministry. The story for reference, we won't look at it, you can look at it later, is in Luke chapter 4, where Jesus opens up the scroll to Isaiah 61, teaching there in the synagogue. And as he's teaching there, he begins to read Isaiah 61, and he says to them, this day, the scriptures are fulfilled in your ears. In other words, he's proclaiming, I am the long-awaited Messiah. 
But something to note when Jesus quotes Isaiah 61 is he stops quoting midway through verse 2, right before it gets to the day of vengeance of our God. And this was not just because Jesus looked up at the clock and said, oh, I got five minutes, got to wrap it up. That's not why. (laughs) It's not why. He did that strategically, on purpose. Why? Because the first part of Isaiah 61, verse 1, and the first part of verse 2, it is speaking about his first coming. He came to preach, to heal, to proclaim liberty. It would not be until his second coming, the rest of verse 2 will be fulfilled, the day of vengeance of our God. Now, Isaiah, as he's seeing the vision, as he's writing this book, he sees them happening simultaneously, all at once. It's kind of like if you've ever driven to the mountains, which I'm sure you probably have a time or two in your life. And when you're a far distance off, it just looks like one giant peak. But the closer you get, you realize it's not one giant peak usually. It's a range of mountains. There are many different peaks, and oftentimes there are huge valleys in between. The closer you get, the more you see the valleys. The closer you get, the more you see the distance between the peaks. But when you're far off... It looks like one giant thing. That's what the prophets would so often do. They would speak of Jesus' first coming and second coming as if they were one, not because they're preaching false things. That was just the way they saw it. But as time actually progressed, as we actually went through history, we see there was a first coming. As Jesus came, he was to set people at liberty. He came to heal. The next time he shows up, he's coming to judge. The Messiah the first time came to die as we saw in Isaiah 53 last week. But he also someday will come to rule and reign. And so when when Jesus opens up his ministry, he starts with verse 1, goes half of verse 2, because that was the mission of the first coming, to open the blind eyes, to heal the broken hearts, to turn our broken lives of sin into something that's beautiful, to turn our mourning into joy because of his life. If you remember... When John the Baptist was sitting in prison and talk about being a little discouraged, talk about as Pastor Rob was saying tonight, you know, the ministry ain't going the way that you thought it was going. I'm sure when John the Baptist dunked Jesus, he says, here we go. Here we go. The king has arrived. The king has arrived. I'm his messenger. We're going to get rid of these Romans and we're going to rule. And now he's in prison. His life is hanging in the balance. So he sends his disciples, John's disciples, and says, go ask Jesus, are you the one we're looking for? Something that was so vivid earlier in his life, years has a tendency to kind of fade in our hearts a little bit, and that's where John was at. And so the disciples go to Jesus and say, are you the one or should we look for another? And do you remember what Jesus said? He said, you tell John what you see and what you hear, that the lame can walk, that the lepers are cleansed, that the deaf hear, that the poor have the gospel preached to them. I don't know if those disciples understood, but I promise when John heard it, he knew. That's what Isaiah said Messiah was going to do. That's exactly who Jesus was in his first coming. Now in his second coming, he's coming to judge. He will come and judge and set up his kingdom as we'll see out late in detail in a couple of chapters here. But, but as we see that in his second coming, he will come to judge. We still need to remember that Jesus is still the one who can turn our ashes into beauty. 
He's still the one that can take our sadness and turn it into joy. And so if you feel tonight like everything's come to ashes, if you feel overwhelmed, down and depressed, can I encourage you to come to Jesus? To pour out your heart to him. To let him do a work of new life in your life. It starts as we come to him and follow him and say, Lord, and I'm talking to us who are Christians tonight. You that know the Lord, we can still get down and depressed. We still, because of our sin, can leave a pile of ashes behind us. Can't we? Or am I just preaching to me tonight? No, all of us, all of us have had this experience. And what we need to do is turn to him and say, Lord, I'm going to do things your way for a change. I'm going to come after you. And you know what follows? Joy. It's like we read in the one-year Bible in Proverbs on Tuesday morning. It says, and so my children listen to me for all who follow my ways are joyful. Do you hear that, church? It doesn't say it'll always be happy. And we know that. (laughs) People die who we love. Trials happen. Not everything is skipping in songs, is it? But there's a joy that goes beyond all of that because I'm walking with the Lord as we've been seeing in the Beatitudes in our weekend study. So turn to him, follow him. Give your life to the one who makes beauty out of ashes. Let him make all things new in your life like it will be with Israel and as he does with the rest of chapter two and verse 61. The third thing we see here is a new name, a new name. Look in chapter 62. Chapter 62, verse one, it says, for Zion's sake, I will not hold my peace. For Jerusalem's sake, I will not rest until her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation as a lamp that burns. The Gentiles shall see your righteousness and all the kings your glory. You shall be called by a new name, which the mouth of the Lord will name. You shall also be a crown of glory in the hand of the Lord, a royal diadem in the hand of your God. You shall no longer be termed forsaken, nor shall your land be any more termed desolate, but you shall be called Hezbah and your land Beluah, for the Lord delights in you and your land, your land shall be married. God tells this nation, again, in this time frame, in the millennium, heading toward the new heavens and the new earth, God says, I'm going to give you, Israel, a new name, a new title to describe who you are. It kind of reminds me of their founder, Israel's founder. Who's that? Jacob. When Jacob was born, he was named Jacob because he caught the heel of his brother Esau as Esau was trying to get out of the womb, kind of like, I want to be first. (laughs) And that act in the womb, it set the tone for most of Jacob's young life. His name means supplanter or heel catcher, someone who's always causing trouble. And as we look at his life, that's exactly who he was until that faithful night when he wrestles with God, surrenders to God, and God says, I'm changing your name, Jacob. You will now be known as Israel, and some translators put that to mean governed by God. I'm changing your name from supplanter, one that's doing your own thing, going your own way, to one that's governed by God. God changed the name of the founder of Israel and by that, his reputation. Jacob, we know up to that point, was a little shady, but God gives him a new name and a new character and now that's gonna happen to Israel as a country. In verse four of chapter 62, it says that they had a reputation because of their sin, because of its effects, to be a nation that was forsaken, a nation that was desolate, 
But God says, I'm going to give you a new name. Hizabah. <laughs> My delight is in her. Belua, married. Instead of being desolate and forsaken, God's going to be known, or Israel's going to be known, as the one in whom the Lord delights and the one who is married to Jehovah. And precious church, again, these are promises for Israel in that day when the Lord is reigning in Jerusalem during the millennium. But I think we can apply them to our lives tonight. You might be a mess. You might feel desolate. But as we have seen tonight, God can give you peace. He can give you beauty for ashes. He can take what was your old name and old character that used to mark you. And as you turn to him, he can give you a brand new character. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing? (laughs) I think it is. I think it's amazing. For some of you, I don't know what marks you. Maybe pride marks you. Aren't you tired of that? Are you tired of being known as someone who's prideful? Well, I'm not known by that. Bet me. Ask someone who will tell you the truth. That is what marks you. Maybe you're bitter. You're just bitter about everything. That's not what marks me. Bet me it doesn't. You know it in your heart and friends. Others do too. What marks you? Anger? Lust? Wouldn't you like a whole new character? Wouldn't you like a whole new name? Then again, come to him. Pour out your heart to him. Confess who you are at the core to him and let him, by his spirit, change your name. Change your character from forsaken and desolate to the one in whom he delights, his bride. He's making all things new, friends. A new day, a new life, a new name. In chapters 63 and 64, a new victory. A new victory. Look at chapter 63, verse 1 with me. Who is this who comes from Eden, Edom with dyed garments from Basra? This one who is glorious in his apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength. I speak in righteousness, mighty to save. Why is your apparel red? And your garments like one who treads in the winepress. I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me. I have trodden them in my anger and trampled them in my fury. Their blood is sprinkled upon my garments, and I have stained all my robes. For the day of vengeance is in my heart, and the year of my redeemed has come. I looked, but there was no one to help, and I wondered that there was no one to uphold. Therefore, my own arm brought salvation for me and my own fury, it sustained me. I have trodden down the peoples in my anger, made them drunk in my fury and brought down their strength to the earth. This is a detailed account somewhat of what the second coming of Jesus Christ is really going to be like for a world that's in rebellion to him. Please understand, I know most of you are Bible students and you got this down pat, but I'm just going to say it again just in case. There's some unclarity to it. The second coming of Jesus Christ is different and distinct, I believe, than when he comes for his church. 
When he comes for his church, that is a glorious day. Amen? <laughs> I hope it happens right before a giant bill is due, right? You're just like, how am I going to deal with this? And as you're doing that, you take your eyes off. It's like, oh, I'm in glory. <laughs> glorious. That's somebody else's problem now. Woo-hoo! Good thing. Good thing that would be. It'll be glorious to see Jesus face to face because you're a child of his. That's what you've been living for your whole life. When he comes back to planet Earth, the first time he came to heal, to open the, the eyes of the blind, to set the captives free, this time he comes to judge. Even so much so, his garments are stained with the blood of those he's judging. We don't often like to think of Jesus that way, but we must because that's also who he is. Some of these statements we read and we think, why all the bloodshed, Lord? Why does there have to be so much destruction? Well, I think the Lord gives us some insight in Isaiah 64 when he says in verse 6, the verse will be up on the screen, but we are all like an unclean thing and our righteousness are like filthy rags, God says through Isaiah. This planet, apart from Jesus and what he does, is dirty, friends. It's dirty. Even the righteous things we try to do, we somehow taint. That's what Jesus is saying. Even our righteousness is like a filthy rag. And this is our Wednesday core group, so I can kind of let you know what that really means, right? It, do, it, doesn't, it doesn't mean that you got a little cornbread on your shirt and your, your rag it's a dirty that, that, that's not what a little grease on, that, that. He, he uses the term minstrel rag that, that's how that's how God sees even our, our our own efforts in righteousness because it seems like even when we try to do things with the right heart we seem to mess it up it was a few years ago but Christy and I met this guy by the name of Rolf and he was originally from Germany. And he's now living in the States. And we asked him if he was a Christian. He said, no, I'm a Lutheran. <laughs> that, not my words. Those are his words. And, of course, I said, I thought, anyways, I thought we were all in the same boat. Just, you know, you believe it's actually the body and blood. Anyways, so he, he went on to explain that he no longer wants a relationship with God. And his reason was because growing up in Germany, the Lutheran church or the state church would take money right out of his paycheck to support the church that he wasn't a part of. I thought of that. I thought, that's, that's, that's a good idea. <laughs> you know, you got your FICA, your federal insured uh, <laughs> contributions act. I think we should have KICA, shouldn't we? Calvary insured contributions. I don't know. I don't, just kidding. Just kidding. This guy was offended because money was taken out of his check without anybody asking him. And then he found out, then he found out and I don't know if this is true. This is what he was telling us. That only 1% of what they took out of his check actually went to do ministry stuff, like feeding the poor and seeing the gospel be preached. The rest were spent on buildings and, and padding the pockets of the leaders. And again, I don't know if that's true or not. I'm just repeating a conversation that I had with this guy. But for this guy, it was true. <laughs> and he was turned off to Christianity because of how the church he was a part of was treating even a righteous thing. I mean, giving is a great thing. It's a great thing we do to express worship to God for all the good he has done for us. 
But even in that, we can mess it up. Even in good things, we can taint it all up. And, and this man was hardened to the gospel because of even something that was done originally with a righteous intent. And that's just us who know and love the Lord. Think of the world and all the gross things that man has done. We, 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 we want the wonder of the millennium, right? We want the wonder of Christ reigning on the throne in a world of peace and, and, and satisfaction and joy. We want all of that, but you got to hear me, church. It's going to start with a deep cleansing. The whole tribulation period, the return of Jesus Christ, is God cleansing this world of sin and its effects and rebellion, and it's devastating. It's devastating. Again, these are prophecies about the millennium, but it has great application for us today. How so? We want to enjoy the blessings of God. We want to enjoy a closeness with Him. And listen, I believe God wants nothing more than for that to be a regular part of our lives. But often, to experience that, there needs to be a deep cleansing. You know, it's like you go home, hopefully not tonight, but you go home tonight and you want to have a snack before bed and you go in your kitchen it's overrun with ants. You ever that happen to you? In Texas, it wasn't ants. It was worse. They were large and they growled at you, these bugs. It was, oh my. <laughs> That's why I'm so excited for Phil and Rebecca going there because the only, the only place where the bugs are bigger is Costa Rica. So they're good, they're good to go. They're good to go. But anyways, you see these creatures crawling on your, and you want to eat, but you, none of us, none of us just goes, oh, get out of my way while I make a sandwich. No, it's like, destroy and cleanse and purify, then I can eat. In in our hearts, gangs, there's got to be purification. I'm not saying any of us ever get to a point where we don't sin. When we're in Jesus' presence and our sin nature is gone, that's when that will be, hallelujah. I still sin, you still sin, we all sin. But 1 John 1, 9 says what? If I confess my sin to him, He's faithful and just to cleanse me from all unrighteousness. But there's got to be a cleansing. I don't just walk through this life treading on his grace. I've got to come to him and say, that stinks. That cockroach of a thing in my life has got to be cleansed, Lord, by you. And we say, well, he doesn't come with a sword. Yeah, because that sword was originally turned on him. You see, sin always produces death. Either the death that Jesus endured on the cross or if you keep rejecting him someday, someday your own death. Jesus took the punishment for you and me so he could cleanse us by his grace and to experience the joy and the wonder of walking with him, there needs to be constant cleansing. Constant times of saying, Lord, search my heart. A prayer that usually takes about two seconds for God to answer. Some of you I know, it's like, what's in there, God? And you pray, oh, Lord, did I say something two weeks ago? Show me. I don't know, that's not my experience. My experience is, Lord, okay, yes. And then I confess and we get going again. So important, so important. Last thing tonight. 
we see a new creation, new creation. Look at chapter 65. Verse 17, we'll pick it up right in the middle of the chapter. We'll see this new thing that God is doing. 65, verse 17. 65, 17, for behold, I create a new heaven and a new earth. The former shall not be remembered or come to mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in what I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem as rejoicing and her people a joy. And I will rejoice in Jerusalem and the joy of my people. The voice of weeping shall be no longer heard in her, nor the voice of crying. Nor more, no more shall an infant from there live but a few days, nor an old man who has not fulfilled his days, for the child shall die at 100 years old, and the sinner being 100 years old shall be accursed. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build another inhabitant. They shall not plant and another eat and another inhabit. There, for, for as the days of a tree, so shall be the days of my people, and my elect shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain, nor bring forth children for trouble, for they shall be the descendants of the blessed of the Lord and their offspring with them. It shall come to pass that before they call, I will answer. And while they are still speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall feed together. And the lion shall eat straw like an ox. And the dust shall be the serpent's food. And they shall not hurt nor destroy in my holy mountain, says the Lord. God will create not only a new earth for us to enjoy, but he's also going to create a new heaven. And some wonder why. I mean, heaven's perfect, isn't it? Well, yes. God's presence is perfect. But let us not forget that even the heavens have been tainted a little bit. Not God, but the heavens. How so? Because Satan still has access. We learn from the book of Job and other places that Satan still regularly goes to heaven and accuses you and I before, before the throne of God. He says, did you, did you see Dylan? Man, that guy. Uh, he could just someday get it right. And what does the Lord say? Oh, Dylan's covered by my blood. But Satan's still there accusing you and I, stinking up the joint. So not only will there be a new earth, there's going to be a new heaven. And again, we'll put up that timing slide just so you can kind of see all of this. It starts with the rapture, then the seven-year tribulation period, second coming, the millennium, where it's a thousand years, and part of chapter 65 is talking about that, because if someone dies, it'll be like a hundred years old, they'll die, that's when an infant dies, and most people will live the life of a tree again. People are still going to be dying in the millennium. We don't have time to get into all of this tonight, but you and I who, who love the Lord and walk with the Lord, we get new bodies, we will rule and reign with Christ, but there will be a group of people that will make it through the tribulation period. And they will repopulate the earth during the millennium, a thousand years of perfect conditions. But life for them will be a lot different. It'll be a lot like life was like in Eden. Just amazing, an amazing time. God is ruling with a rod of righteousness. During that millennium, Satan is bound, not destroyed, but bound. But at the end of it, we're told in the book of Revelation, he gets out one more time. He gets let go. And he'll lead one last rebellion. Why? Because everybody, everybody, you and me have had to make a decision to follow the Lord in our lives. So will the people of the millennium, in my opinion. 
those that were born in perfect conditions, those that have had Jesus reign on the throne, they're going to have to make a choice someday too. And that's why Satan is released. But once that happens, God puts it down. Don't worry. Don't worry. You'll be okay. And then God will create a new heaven and new earth and we will forever be with the Lord. And in that place, that is where the order is established. The curse is reversed. The wolf and the lamb just chill out together. (laughs) No longer running and eating. (laughs) The lion and the ox will both eat straw. Our kids can ride on lions. What a great, great time that will be. My my son's going to love it. And that time is a time made up of entirely people who love the Lord. Listen to how he describes it in Isaiah 66, 1 and 2. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne, earth is my footstool. Where is the house that you will build for me? Where is the place of my rest? For all those things my hand is made and all those things exist, says the Lord. But on this one I will look, on him who is poor and of a contrite heart and who trembles at my word. He's describing those that inhabit this new heaven and he says it's people that tremble at my word, people who are of a poor and a contrite heart. And sometimes critics of the Bible say, well, I don't like that. I don't like it that it's only God's people that end up in heaven one day. Only people that have a relationship with him that get to go to heaven. Well, if you don't like that, there is an alternative. Look at the last three verses of the book of Isaiah. For as the new heavens and the new earth which I make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so your descendants and your name remains and it shall come to pass that from new moon to another, from one Sabbath to another, all flesh shall come and worship before me, says the Lord. That's where I want to be. Where I don't want to be is verse 24. And they shall look and go forth upon the corpses of men who have transgressed against me and their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched, nor shall there be an abhorrence to all flesh. There is an alternative to spending eternity with God in heaven, and that is to spend eternity apart from heaven, apart from God. You know, something we're told all throughout the scripture is that when you die, friend, you are going to be gathered to your people. Just look at the list of scriptures where that is said over and over and over again. Next slide. Just over and over and over again. It says all throughout the Bible, this man died and he was gathered to his people. So my closing question for you tonight is, who, who is your people? Who are your peeps? I, I'm not saying you have to be perfect for, again, I don't, I don't know a believer that is. But we love God. We're trying to grow in his grace. We love his word. It's why we're gathered here tonight. We love his presence. Do you? Do you? Whose people are you? Because if you say, well, I don't like being in God's presence. I don't like being around this place. I don't like God's people. Well, that's because the people are acting in a non-Christ-like manner. That's one thing. But if they just aren't your people, you need to pray, precious friend. Lord, is my heart right before you? Heaven is coming. And how glorious that's going to be. But hell's coming too. And how horrible that will be. And my heart for you and for me is that we would fall on the graciousness of God and experience his glorious kingdom. Yes, in the years to come. But precious men and women, Right now, right now. How many times does Jesus say in the Gospels, the kingdom, the kingdom is among you. 
And we know that meant that he was there with them. That's, that's, a, that's a great application of that. But I think another equally good application of that is the kingdom of God is here as we live for him and love for him and lean on him and do things his way as outlined in this book. Oh, there's a kingdom of God coming. Don't misunderstand me. And I can't wait for that kingdom. But do you realize that in the midst of this world with all of its shame and hurt and heartaches, the kingdom of God can still be here. As you say, Lord, I'm not gonna live by the dictates of my own heart. I'm not gonna live by what this world tells me to do. I'm gonna open up this book and by your grace and by your spirit, I'm gonna follow you. Man, you're gonna experience the kingdom here and now. Now, it won't be perfect because it's still the stinky world, right? But one day, you're gonna close your eyes and step into eternity. And I pray, precious men and women, for you that it will be the fulfillment of the way you have lived your life and not something that's radically different from how you're living today. The principles of the kingdom, they're already given to us. We already see them. Let's apply them. Let's live them out. Let's be, as we're learning on the weekends, what it is to be men and women who are poor in spirit. Just just desperate before God. And then as we're desperate, he, he builds us up and he makes us his kids and we're able to be pure in heart that even, even when we're persecuted for Jesus' name, we can have joy because great is our reward in heaven and great is the company you keep of men and women that have gone before you like Isaiah, like Jesus, like Jeremiah that we will get to know next Wednesday night. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. And as we, again, just kind of do a flyover of these chapters tonight, Lord, I hope we've got a good taste of what the end of the book of Isaiah is about. It's your coming kingdom. It's about the events of the second coming of you, Jesus, and your establishing of your kingdom on this earth. And As we see it tonight, we see that kingdom is going to be awesome where there's peace and joy and things are made new. But I pray, Lord, it would not escape our attention tonight that though that is prophecy and though that will happen in a future kingdom with you on the throne, God, in a similar way, that can happen in our hearts tonight. Tonight can be a new day in our relationship with you. Tonight can be the start of a new life, surrendered to you, not just in part, but in whole. Tonight can be the start of a new reputation, a new name, no longer the one who is prideful, arrogant, angry, bitter, but one in whom the Lord delights, the bride of Christ. Lord, we are so thankful that there is coming a new creation where we're gonna rule and reign with you and all of the troubles of this world will finally be over. Thank you, Jesus.
But I pray as much as possible we would be living in your kingdom now. Living by your principles now. In communion with the King of Kings now. Because Lord, we know that joy and peace and satisfaction and victory and a new character will follow those who follow you. Not just someday in the future, but tonight. Tonight, may that be so in every one of our hearts. And so, as we said earlier, Lord, just search us. Search us for priorities that need to be adjusted. Search us for weights that we're just dragging behind our Christianity that's slowing us down. Tonight, may we cut those ropes. God, search our heart for sins that need to be repented of. Because there's no one like you, King Jesus. We can't wait to see your face. I pray we'd see your face tonight, tomorrow, as we walk with you and love you and worship you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.